Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Supernova, David Kretzman, and from Total Income, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Sports Illustrated columnist Andrew Brandt is our guest this week. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin once again with the weather. Last week it was Hurricane Harvey. And now, as of this taping, Hurricane Irma is bearing down on Florida. JP Morgan out with analysis Friday morning that estimates the economic damage of those two storms. <coughs> will be equal to half of the total damage done by every hurricane hitting the U.S. since 1965, Ron. And yes, they did adjust for 2017 dollars. Oh, my goodness. We knew it was going to be bad. I don't think we were expecting it to be this bad. Yeah, and obviously, our thoughts go out to, to everyone who's affected. Having said that, this is a business show, so I'm going to hit, hit, hit it with the cold, hard facts. I tend to think that, in general, natural disasters do not have significant impacts on a national level, especially when you take into account the demand and the spending that's created by the rebuilding efforts. Um, it's typically a short-term, I hate to use the word blip, but blip, if anything, um, that comes back um, later during the rebuilding time. Um, now, having said that, there are individual companies and industries that will be impacted in the short term, and perhaps some in the medium term. Insurance and reinsurance is, is the first comp- uh, industry that jumps out at me um, that will be impacted. Although, unfortunately, flood insurance is is typically not held by most people, and in a lot of cases, um, certainly from Harvey, it was a flood uh, event where Irma is more of a wind impact that will be covered. But the industry is, is has a lot of. Service Surplus that should um, be there to pay these claims. So I'm actually not too worried about the insurance stocks, although they might, you know, trade lower in the nearer term. Yeah, you might see some industries impacted more than others. Uh, Home Depot and Lowe's might see more business. Used car retailers like CarMax might see some extra demand as people look to replace damaged cars with a new or used car. And Mac, our producer, he he brought up a really, I think, a cool story that shows some of the the better sides of humanity in in a crisis like this. Royal Caribbean was forced to cancel a cruise that was going from Miami to the Bahamas, and instead, they're going to take that cruise, they're going to evacuate employees and their families to safe seas until Irma passes. I think that's just a, a great example of a company being creative to protect their employees and their families, as well as the cruise ship, which is a very important asset for the well, company. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how different businesses react. You look at JetBlue and uh, JetBlue offering really cheap flights for people so that they can get out of the, the way of Irma. Yeah, and we talk all the time about how companies will go into earnings season and the management teams will bring up weather and all, all of that stuff. And we, we do make fun of that to a degree. Now, I think when we Look at storms like Irma. Obviously, this is going to be very widespread uh, reaching. And it, you know, if you look at the map, and you can see where basically the entire state of Georgia and South Carolina uh, could could be in the path there, if if not both, at least one. But we look at those companies that uh, can't really necessarily make up for the sales that were lost, like restaurants. I think are the yep. no the no brainer there. 
they're not going to be able to go out there and double, you know, those sales that they that they missed for however long they have to stay closed. And, and there is uh, the possibility that they will be closed for a long time. I mean, I remember in '89 going through Hugo, we were out of school for a month, and and I mean, Irma, Irma, and I think is it is it Jose that's right behind yep. Irma. Yeah. I mean, this could be a really uh, tough one-two punch. Um, I think it's also worth looking for sort of babies thrown out with the bathwater as well. I mean, Ron was mentioning insurance companies, and the two that come to mind immediately are Berkshire Hathaway and Markel, two of our favorites here. I know that we're going to be keeping an eye on both of those in million-dollar portfolio because, as Ron said, this is a business show. At the end of the day, we're trying to generate returns for our our portfolios and our members, and um, and, and it's always worth keeping an eye out for those great quality businesses that just kind of happen to get lumped in with, with the sort of pain, so to speak. Yeah, and as I said, there will be companies that, that do benefit from the rebuilding efforts, whether those are construction materials, engineering services companies, even communication equipment companies that are going to have to replace um, equipment that ha- has been destroyed. Um, retailers like Home Depot, I, I'm sure, will will fare well as well. So, th- there are companies that, that could have a short-term um, positive impact as a result. Uh, we were talking about travel and uh, Walt Disney World down in Florida. Obviously, it's going to be impacted as well. Uh, speaking of Disney, this week, CEO Bob Iger said that the company's profits this year will be roughly in line with last year, and the market didn't like that, Jason. No, it didn't like it. And I think the big question with, with Disney has been, how are they going to deal with this sort of shift in the media space as things move toward uh, sort of over-the-top distribution? ESPN is obviously a tremendously valuable property for Disney. I mean, it is responsible for the lion's share of the company's profits. Uh, we always talk about how they're really good at making money in a number of different ways, but but the question mark has always sort of been how are they going to approach this transition? And we got a lot of clarity uh, in in regard to how Bob Iger is seeing this. He he very explicitly stated his two priorities here as as uh, the CEO for the next couple of years before he uh, calls it a day. It's it's to build out this direct to consumer business on the Disney side and the ESPN side, and then to create a smooth transition for whoever his successor may be. Uh, so we got some good sort of hints as to how they're looking at this and. I personally am encouraged by it. I mean, you're looking at one side of the equation with all of the Disney content, building out this Disney app where you can you can pull all of that original content and that that just stuff that they have that just makes magic for decades. Uh, the other side on ESPN, though, you know, they're going to be getting out there. I think a lot of content that is not currently really distributed via their linear channel properties. So that's encouraging. They're going to make an ad dynamic a part of the ESPN offering. It's not going to be part of the Disney offering. But but regardless, it was interesting to see that they did actually draw a line in the sand there and say, this is the stuff that we're taking back. If you remember when they when they first announced this, and, and we were curious as to how much content Netflix might still be able to have uh, access to, it sounds like really Disney's taking it all. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a big deal because we know Disney has been so successful for so long because of that IP they have. And we've seen Netflix sort of make that same move and into acquiring their own IP. So, I think it's a wise move from Disney. The biggest question is, will they be able to build out a technically sound and user-friendly product. I like their chances. We've got a lot of good examples out there today as, as, as to how to do it. And uh, you just look at Netflix and, and Amazon, for example, of two ideas out there that have really, really worked well. So they have what really matters in the content. It's going to take them a little while to build this offering out, but I suspect they'll do okay with it. Yeah, with with Bam Tech, I think that gives Disney the, the tech resources that they need to build out a, a compelling user experience streaming platform. And I think Disney is doing the, the right decision here. They're not going middle of the ground, doing some licensing 
podcasting, doing some with their own streaming service. I think pulling that all of that into their own direct-to-consumer offering is what they need to do. And the company has so many levers they can pull to get consumers into this streaming service. Maybe a free trial for everyone who goes to Disneyland or Disney World. A lot of different levers there, so I think Disney can pull this off. And I think the really neat thing with when they're looking at ESPN is they're really talking about going a la carte here and, and breaking that stuff out so that you can get exactly what you want. I mean, we live in an on-demand world, and you can watch what you want when you want, and that applies to sports too. Uh, now, granted, sports does have a live dynamic, but Chris, if you could go in there and purchase uh, just one game or access to your favorite team or a conference or something like that. They're going to break this out and make it a bit more personalized. I think that's really encouraging, the right thing. Equifax, the credit reporting agency, revealed a massive data breach that exposed the personal information of as many as 143 million consumers. And fortunately, guys, one of them is sitting here at the table. Uh, Ron? <laughs> there may be more. You haven't checked. I haven't checked yet. My wife is safe. I appear to not be. Um, this, is, this is a mess. Um, Two-thirds, almost a half of Americans potentially affected. Uh, credit card numbers for about 209,000 U.S. customers exposed. Um, this is is pretty big deal here. They, they say the breach occurred between mid-May and July. The company didn't discover it until July 29th. Uh, three We're in September, though, right? Yeah, three major executives sold stock August 1st and 2nd. Um, the company is saying that is just a very tiny portion of their overall holdings. I'm not sure the SEC will take that as a proper <laughs> argument. Um, this is a compliance issue from that perspective. I mean, the company should have been on lockdown once that was discovered, and there should have been no trading in the stock whatsoever, especially since we're just finding out about this now. Um, it's appropriate that the stock is selling off. Uh, it's hard to trust a company like this where everything is really built on trust. Um, and they are offering credit monitoring services for those like myself who are affected. And I'm even wary about, about that. Uh, so, so not good. And they're going to have, a, they're gonna have a, a mess to clean up. Shareholders of Dave & Buster's had their single worst day ever this week when the restaurant chain posted weak second quarter earnings. So, of course, we turn to our resident David expert, Mr. Kretzman. Hey, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, the quarter actually looked decent, especially when you consider the headwinds that restaurants continue to face here in the U.S. Revenue was up 15%, earnings per share up 18%. Dave & Buster's has a few moving pieces. Uh, amusements, or their arcade games, essentially, within the restaurants make up over 50% of those restaurant sales. And when you look at same-store sales for amusements, those were up nearly 5% this quarter, but their food and Beverage sales or their bar sales were down more than three percent. So you have kind of a, a two two different uh, segments of the business here. They actually raised revenue and earnings guidance for the year because they're opening a couple extra stores, but they lowered their comps guidance. So they're expecting same store sales only to go up one or two percent this year. You're seeing a lot of restaurants do that, but uh, they are going to repurchase up to $100 million more stock. And you're seeing a couple other restaurants do this, like Pizza Hut, where they're going through a tough time, so they're doubling down on their share repurchases. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the best strategy there. So, Dave & Buster's is still producing positive free cash flow. As far as restaurants go, they are performing better than most. But I wonder how this company will do. If the economy does hit some harder times, will they be able to keep people coming back to those stores for, for the arcade games? Yeah, I think these are all good reminders that when you're going to buy a restaurant stock, make sure you buy a restaurant 
where the food can kind of stand on its own. I mean, I think we're seeing a pretty phenomenal fall from grace with Buffalo Wild Wings as well, where it's not they're not really known for this great food. I mean, they make wings, but they also uh, have these stores with 60-plus TVs in them. Generally speaking, Buffalo Wild Wings, Dave's, these, these Buster Dave's, these places don't really, they're not known for the quality of their food. It's the experience. And when people aren't willing to pay for that experience, that's a, that's, that's a real tough hurdle to overcome. Coming up, the footwear innovation we all needed in college has finally arrived. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I don't have Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, David Kretzman, and Ron Gross. You can follow us on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group, which is Motley Fool Podcast. And next Tuesday, you can join us for a Facebook Live video event. That's Tuesday, September 12th. Apple is having their much-anticipated event to unveil the next iPhone. And when it's over, I'm going to be joined by some of our analysts here at Fool HQ. They'll be sharing their reactions, their analysis, and what it means for Apple stock. And we'll be taking your questions. That's Tuesday, September 12th, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Facebook. Shares of GoPro up 13% this week after the company said third quarter results will be better than expected. What do you think, David? Did the stock pop match the guidance? Well, they didn't actually raise guidance. They're just re- they're reaffirming that they'll meet the high end of the guidance they already gave last quarter. So this really seemed like an unnecessary press release. Like just wait six weeks and give us the good news <laughs> then. You don't need to <laughs> issue a new press release for that. But GoPro is on the up and up, maybe. Uh, their revenue should be up almost 30% this quarter to close to $310 million. They're being much more disciplined with expansion and managing inventory. And they have their flagship Hero 6 camera launching later this year in time for the holidays. So company uh, is moving in the right direction, but uh, I'm still not super excited about the, the stock going forward. They have a camera called Hero 6, and Disney hasn't sued them for <laughs> infringement over the movie Big Hero 6? Hey, that might be a story for us in a couple months. On Wednesday, Restoration Hardware announced blowout earnings for the third quarter. They raised guidance. Ron, do I have this right? The stock was up nearly sixty percent. Uh, yeah, forty to sixty percent, based on you know when you looked at it. The uh, this one is all about perspective, though. Let's put it in context. If you bought this stock at a twenty fifteen high of a hundred, and now you're at seventy three, you're still underwater. But if you bought it at the low, the twenty sixteen low of twenty six. You're a happy camper. Um, the company's kind of been all over the map. Big deal here is that they've moved or trying to move to a membership model. You pay um, $100 a year, you get 25% discount on all their furniture, all their merchandise. Um, that seems to have been gaining some good traction. They are not releasing any details on renewal rates or membership numbers, but they're saying the renewal rates and membership growth are, quote, positive. So I guess the street likes the word positive. Uh, and they're also reducing their um, distribution facilities um, to save some money from four to three. So margins are going up, earnings are going up. They say they'll produce $400 million of free cash flow by the end of the year. So things, things you know, not dead yet. This company at one point was either a value investment or a value trap, and they've certainly seemed to to have rebounded. But at 28 times earnings, uh, it's not for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess my perspective here is that I mean, I don't understand who shopped at these places. <laughs> like, I mean, we just moved, for example. So I try to look at sort of where my wife's interest is for for stuff around the house. I mean, I've seen Wayfair, I've seen Amazon, Home Depot, whatnot. I mean, Restoration Hardware just sounds like it. I I don't know where it fits in anymore. And I guess I kind of I mean I have to ask you at least do you feel like comfortable if they're not willing to release those renewal rates or member numbers and and the strategy is centering around that 
That, that seems to be a little bit more nebulous than we, we like in our it, investment. It's potentially data, right? a red flag. They're claiming it's for competitive reasons. There's only a few companies out there, call it Costco, Amazon, that really have this membership model. They don't want to release too much information to the competition. Uh, interestingly, they're the second most shorted furniture stock <laughs> in the market next to William Sonoma. So this big pop might be somewhat of a short squeeze. You know what? Good for them. Hey. <laughs> Good for them, because that's right out of the Jeff Bezos playbook. Like, a little strategic. What are our renewal rates? <laughs> We're not going to tell you. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Steve, you a restoration hardware guy? Yeah, I signed up for that deal, Ron. <laughs> you did? Saying, Thank you. I did, yeah. We needed two mirrors for a bathroom, and they would look great. Why do you blame off. me, like Ron? Oh, sorry, it was Jason that said Can you this? feel Broido's smile? Can you feel it in here? It was, it was a good deal, 25% off. I just have to remember to cancel it. Did you hit a store that has the food now? They're offering like hospitality? Missed that. Oh. Missed that one. All right. Fitbit is teaming up with medical device maker Dexcom to develop products to help people with diabetes monitor their glucose levels. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I think this is the direction that they need to pursue. They need to do it with a sense of urgency, really, given where the company is today. Uh, diabetes affects worldwide around 400 million people or so. So there's a tremendous opportunity for uh, for them to do something very meaningful for a lot of people. But with that said. I think this new device, the Ionic, is facing a up, an uphill battle still. But I think all things equal, if you put an Ionic next to an Apple Watch, and I can't believe I'm actually, you know, pumping the Apple Watch here, but I think most people are going to pick the Apple device. So uh, it's the right thing to do. Apple's doing the same kind of stuff though, and I, I just don't know how far Fitbit can really take this. Yeah, interesting to compare Fitbit and GoPro to down and out hardware companies trying to gain some traction. In the case of Fitbit. They have $675 million in net cash, which is 45% of their $1.5 billion market cap. So, potentially a value play there if they can stop burning cash. Over the past year, shares of Adidas have outpaced Nike by more than 45%. And given their latest product, it's clear that Adidas is innovating in ways that Nike just isn't. Right on time for Oktoberfest celebrations, Adidas has unveiled a new version of its classic München sneaker, which has been updated to be vomit and beer resistant. I mean, I mean, haven't we been waiting for this forever? Pizza Hut gave us the shoe where you could actually order a pizza, right? And now you've got this vomit and alcohol resistant? Beer resistant, yeah. It sounds great for fraternity parties. I mean, you just put, put them together and you've got a... You got it all figured out right there. You can order a pizza, and you don't have to worry about puking on your shoe and spilling your beer. <laughs> well, and great timing because let's face it, Oktoberfest celebrations, uh, both here in the U.S. and abroad, uh, you're going to run into that. Steve, can I interest you in a pair of these sneakers? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Sounds filthy. <laughs> you don't want to go to an Oktoberfest celebration? Not, no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> not, no. All right, Jason Moser, David Kretzman, Ron Gross, guys. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. The NFL season kicks off this week. Up next, we'll dig into the business of football with Sports Illustrated columnist Andrew Brandt. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The NFL season kicks off this weekend. Time to talk about the business of football with Andrew Brandt. He is a columnist for Sports Illustrated, and he hosts the Business of Sports podcast. Andrew, welcome back. Always good to be with you guys as we start another season. So, in terms of off the field, because there'll be plenty to watch on the field, but off the field, what are you going to be watching this year to gauge the economic health of the NFL? 
Well, I think the ratings issue is always there. You know, we talked this time last year, and we had the election, and, and that was it was not just any election, as everyone knows. It was the most divisive election ever, and all of the draw, good or bad, that Donald Trump gave other programming in the news networks drew from the NFL. And, Frank, there were two debates going up head-to-head with the NFL. So there was a major drop-off in NFL ratings, at least the first half of the NFL season last year. But then it rebounded post-election. So on the media side, I'll certainly be interested in seeing if that rebound from the latter half of 2016 continues in 17 and maybe even goes up higher because, listen, we always talk about it, all the sort of negativity that people say about the NFL. Well, business seems to keep booming and my expectation is that ratings will rebound to 2015 levels or beyond. So one of the things we do at The Motley Fool when we're looking at businesses is we look at who are the people running these businesses. And the face of the NFL in terms of its leadership has been Roger Goodell. He's the commissioner. He recently renewed his contract through the year 2024. And if all you did was listen to so many fans around the league. It, it doesn't appear to be concentrated in just one particular fan base, but so many fans, and also so many people in the sports media are down on Roger Goodell and his stewardship of the NFL. And I'm wondering, first and foremost, if you think that story is overblown. Well, I think that he's going to be the face of the league, as you said, and he puts off an image that's very corporate, uh, that's unrevealing, that's somewhat bland, and very to the task of the party line, rather than more of an emotional, more of a human performance from that position. That's going to upset people naturally. But I think we have to dig in and say, why is this happening? Because... As I teach, when I teach classes, as I talk about, a commissioner in reality works for the owners and not only gets a paycheck from them, but really is functioning as their steward, as their mouthpiece, as their front guy. And whatever way he is, and people are upset with him for a lot of different reasons, I don't think it's something that ownership wants different. In other words... I've seen a more human, a more vulnerable side of Roger Goodell when I worked for the Packers and he was invested in a couple of our players that were having issues. But you don't see that publicly. And I think there's a reason for it. Maybe it's the constituency that they care most about, which are networks, sponsors, advertisers, business side, wants the strong-jawed, iron-jawed commissioner that's going to be in the face of player conduct, which we can talk about, and all the other issues confronting the league. The other part of it that I'll leave here is that part of his whatever, $30 million extension per year, part of the job description is to take the heat so they don't have to. So I always bring this up. You know, when Ray Rice, when Roger Goodell was excoriated for a two-game suspension of Ray Rice after that video came out, No one said a word about the Ravens. Well, the Ravens didn't discipline him at all. In fact, supported him throughout that. But it always comes down on the commissioner. I think owners are too local, and the commissioner is just that sort of the face of the punching bag that owners 
rely on him to be. So when you think about, uh, as you indicated, you've got, you've got the owners, and even for his good standing with the owners as a group, there have been points of time when one owner or another, one powerful owner or another, has really got Goodell in his cross sights. Uh, Robert Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots recently, uh, Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys. The, look, not all owners have the same level of influence. And so those are two of the more powerful owners. And yet Goodell gets this extension for fans who are hoping that Goodell gets shown the door someday. What does that look like? Does it take a number of powerful owners sort of banding together? Uh, or does it look like something else? Well, I think the important thing to note uh, a couple things about when you bring up those two influential owners. Roger Goodell has gone hard at two players on two of the most powerful teams, both powerful owners in the past three years. What business model suggests you should do that? And I, what, what he's doing is perhaps showing the rest of ownership, I don't play favorites, I don't care that they're bell cow players, that they're bell cow owners of the league. I'm going to do what's right in my mind for the integrity of the game and player discipline and conduct detrimental and all those things. And believe me, you, when Robert Kraft is livid about Tom Brady or Jerry Jones is livid about Ezekiel Elliott, there are 10, 15, 20 other owners saying, boy, Roger, go get him. So we're talking about pleasing all 32. I was part of the league. I know this for a fact. Every team, without exception, every team thinks that Commissioner Goodell and the league office treat other teams better than they treat them. It's a universal paranoia. I dealt with it. I think it's true in every league. And that's what he's dealing with, trying to please all 32 rather than worry about one influential here or there. The game of football in the NFL is largely the same, the way the game is played, as it was, say, 30 years ago. Yes, the players are bigger and faster. Uh, There have been some modification to the rules. But the nuts and bolts of the game of football is the same. Given that we know so much more about players' health and safety now, particularly when it comes to concussions, where do you think the game of football is 30 years from now? Is it still going to look about the same? Or do you think the more we know about health, the greater the likelihood the game will change? You know, this is the question that you ask what the league I'm going to be looking at. What the league is wrestling with all the time are these safety issues versus the game itself. I was in the league when there was a committee formed to study. One of the things came out of the study was the most concussive play in the game is a kickoff return. So kickoff returns were a touchback was moved up five yards to reward the team to take a touchback, thereby eliminating some, if not all, kickoff returns. Take that to its logical extension. In 30 years, we probably won't have kickoffs. Now, we'll have a segment of the population that says, wait a minute, that's the most exciting play in football. Why would you take that away? Well, you're balancing that with safety. I do think this. I think whenever you hear about studies about CTE or concussions or 
features on players suffering later in their years. You hear about football's popularity waning, and I just don't see it. I mean, I see the violence as a draw to people where we've all established this acceptable contradiction in our lives where we lament the violence, we lament the concussions, we bemoan the concussions, but we watch. We watch. And and the numbers suggest that. And, you know, maybe we have an issue with youth football, uh, which the NFL, I know, would oppose because they want to get people interested as early as possible in contact football. But maybe on that level things change. But I don't see any diminution of a talent base for the NFL, and I don't see any diminution of interest in the foreseeable future. And certainly the same can be said for the money, and all you have to do is look at the online streaming rights for Thursday night games, which are typically not the marquee matchup of the week. A couple of years ago, it was Twitter paying $10 million for the right. online streaming rights. Amazon has upped that to $50 million this year. And I'm curious how high you think this can go. And I will just add as context, Facebook just tried to pay $600 million for five years' worth of rights to stream Indian cricket matches. Now, they lost out to Rupert Murdoch on that deal, but Facebook is certainly willing to pay up to stream sports. Yeah, this is one of the big issues, I think, going forward, because you mentioned it. Last year, Twitter, $10 million. Just streaming, while it's on television, other places, it's on broadcast, either CBS, NBC, or NFL Network, but just streaming rights. $10 million last year, $50 million this year with Amazon. Notice a couple things. One, the increase, which you talked about. But number two, one-year deals with major media companies. Uh, it, I would not be surprised if they do a one-year deal next year with you pick it, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, or Google, and YouTube, whatever. And then when it comes to 2021 and all these network deals are up, Wow. They've handed out crumbs to all these mega companies, and they will be lining up at the trough. Maybe for complete rights, but more likely, the NFL will get checks again from Fox, CBS, NBC, ESPN, and also get checks from those companies. Uh, So, again, I just see the NFL... Now, media companies are having issues, but traditional media, but I I see this as a win for the NFL rather than a loss, because more and more suitors. And yes, as you mentioned with the Facebook example, they'll be there, and as you know better than I do, so much cash and so much ability to uh, make, make impact substantially. Do you think the fact that the television deals are up in 2021, do you think that makes it more likely that we will see Apple and YouTube jump in in the next couple of years for streaming rights? Yes. I see that happening. And it's just so obvious to me, why wouldn't they do more than a one-year deal with Twitter? Why wouldn't they do more than a one-year deal with Amazon? We know those companies would like to be longer-term partners. Try someone else out in 2018, someone else out in 2019. Give them a taste. See what programming does for them. See how many people jump on 
I loved the Twitter experience with Thursday Night Football because it was a one-button, seamless experience. Uh, can Amazon replicate that? So I just think all these kind of things are going to be out there. And as you said, Thursday night are not even marquee games. So the argument's going to be, well, hey, Amazon, hey, Twitter, what if, what if you actually had the Packers versus the Cowboys or something like that? All right, let's wrap up with the players. And obviously, beyond their salary, the opportunity for players in the NFL to make money revolves around endorsements, sports drinks, athletic apparel, video games, all that sort of thing. There is a rookie tight end for the Denver Broncos named Jake Butt. And I'm sure it's not easy growing up with your last name being (laughs) Butt. However, he signed an endorsement deal with Charmin. You've studied the business of sports for a long time. Where does this rank on your pantheon of fantastic endorsements? Love it. (laughs) Love it. You know, what could be more uh, apropos for Mr. Butt? Uh, Yeah, I mean, listen, I was an agent before I was a team executive, and what was so hard about marketing football players is beyond the superstar quarterbacks, what made them different? What was the hook? What could you sell as a marketing company? That is one you can sell. <laughs> That's a hook. And I will say, bringing him up, he represented a very tough thing because he got hurt in a bowl game uh, and suffered. I don't know where he was projected before that, but he went in the fifth round, which is dramatically reduced wages from where he would have gone if he not not gotten hurt. We saw other players forego bowl games. For that very reason, like Christian McCaffrey, Leonard Fournette, who went in the top eight in the draft. So that may be something to watch going forward with top college players. You know, it's interesting to me that the NFL has 16 games in the regular season, and the NBA has 82 games in its regular season. But when it comes to the preseason, they both have the same number of games. (laughs) They both have four games. Is there any reason for that in the NFL other than money? I don't think so. I mean, I think everyone recognizes this is a problem. Uh, You're not watching the stars. You're paying full prices. Because why has it happened? Because they can. They, the owners, can charge it. I think the issue is going to be a bargaining issue uh, with the players. In other words, can we eliminate some or all of the preseason in exchange for one or two more regular season games. The last bargaining session was no way, look at the injury rate, so so physical, so much attrition, we're never going to do it. We wonder if the NFL came and said, okay, you're going to get X more money and no preseason or a couple scrimmages. Could that be palatable? So that would be the only way that you could somehow fix the preseason I just think it's it's an antiquated concept that's not working. You can read him in Sports Illustrated. You can also check out his podcast. It's called The Business of Sports. It's a great listen. Andrew Brandt, always great to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Are you ready, ready? Are you ready for some football? A Monday night party? Hey, this is rockin' Randall Hank. Ready to get the good time. Up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Monday. Turn up the lights. All my rowdy friends are back for Monday night. I've got two dollars in the jukebox. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with David Kretzman, Jason Moser, and Ron Gross. It is time to get to the stocks on our radar. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I got Tanger Factory Outlet Centers, ticker SKT, although I can't figure out why. Um, there must be a reason. Uh, it's a real estate investment trust focused on outlet malls, which is very important here in the world of troubled real estate uh, and retail. Um, number two outlet mall operator behind Simon Property. They've increased their dividend every year since going public in 1993. Currently pay 5.7% yield. Not too shabby, but it's not without risk. A fair amount of cash and competition have flooded into outlet centers. And as, as I said, retailers are struggling somewhat. So be a little bit careful here. But I think you have both upside as well as a nice dividend. One year away from being a dividend aristocrat, yes. Uh, Twenty-five year, yeah. But they have to be in the S and P five hundred to be an official aristocrat. Uh, well. Steve Broido, our man behind the glass. Question about Tanger? Are there any true outlets anymore? I feel like all that stuff gets made for the the outlets, and it's just I just feel like ah, oh, come on. I want the I want the second. You know, it was <laughs> it was at Nordstrom, and now it's it's marked down and. It just feels like they're making all this stuff for the outlets. All right, it's okay, Steve. It's going to be fine. You, you do have you do have to search a little bit. You want to get yourself a deal and, and not not be scammed. I hear you, but just search around a bit. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Yeah, one we're looking at for the um, the watch list and MDP is Hasbro ticker AJS. Uh, in July, earnings came out. It was a pretty decent quarter. The stock has just fallen off a cliff since then. I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, it had had a very good year up to that point. There were some concerns there in the international segment, uh, particularly in the UK and Brazil, and that matters because uh, international does account for for a, a substantial amount of the company's profitability. Uh, but all things considered, they still have a lot going for them. Plenty of, of stuff coming out this holiday season with Star Wars, with Frozen. Hey, kids like toys, whether it's physical or digital, and Hasbro is doing a great job on both counts. Steve, what's something in the digital space they can do that would just blow the market away? How about a digital Mr. Potato Head? Right, you just get your kid that digital Mr. Potato Head. You don't have to worry about all those pieces lying around your house, <laughs> the dog eating them, or you step on them. I think that would blow Sold. me away. That blow a lot of parents away. Yeah. I can't beat that. I'll go with Two U ticker T W O U. This is a software as a service company that partners with colleges and universities to bring their graduate programs online. They're working with universities like Harvard, Yale, University of North Carolina, Berkeley, and others. And what I like about them is they sign long-term contracts for 10 years or more, and they take 50% or more of the tuition revenue from the students. So, interesting model, one I'm taking a look at. Steve? Favorite course from college? Uh, Beekeeping. I got the worst grade in beekeeping, but I enjoyed it. That sounds terrifying. Awesome. <laughs> Steve, what do you want to add to your watch list? I'm going with the beekeeper. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. All right. David Kretzman, Jason Moser, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer, Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>